Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We're in the Second Corinthians, we're in chapter 3, and we're going to look at chapter 3, verse 4, down to chapter 4, verse 6. So we'll read that first and then uh, look through it just by way of introduction. Paul has talked in the first few verses about the fact that uh, what he's done is, is been impressed and imprinted on the hearts of those people. And then he sort of transitions from there uh, to talking about the, uh, the Old Testament and the covenant and uh, the veil that Moses wore and then the, the New Testament and what we're under and uh, the gospel and so on. So it becomes uh, much more sort of theological than what he's looked at uh, so far. He's been talking about his desire to come and why he didn't come and his conscience and those types of things. And now he's going to give us this uh, wonderful theological uh, section. So reading from chapter 3, verse 4, And we have such trust through Christ toward God that now that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfast or steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lays on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Chapter 4, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Some tremendous phrases uh, in there when you think uh, that last phrase there, the gospel, and the fact that uh, the light, uh, what was revealed to us, when you think of that last phrase, he has shone in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And so when you look at uh, this section, uh, as we read, say, from verse 7 down uh, through most of those verses in chapter 3, it almost... Who threw that? (laughs) You missed, anyway. Uh, It almost seems circular. He talks about the glory that was and then more glory and greater glory and passing uh, glory. And so I want to try and break this down a bit so we can sort of figure out what was going on or what is going on. And so when I approach a a passage like this, I try and sort of frame, get an outline sort of that helps me to to formulate, to break things down. And you've probably noticed most of my outlines tend to start with the same letter. I I say one time in my life I was illiterate and then I became alliterate. And uh, for some reason, uh, it's just the way my brain works or doesn't work that... The the same letters just uh, come out. So I want to talk first of all about what Paul says about his commission, what his his role was, what was entrusted to him, what was uh, given to him. And in verses uh, 4 and 5, he talks about the fact that it's not really him. And of course, we know it's not us. Uh, We're not sufficient for these things. And so it's got to come from God. And it's, it's God's work that is, is in view. And so our sufficiency is, is from God, he says at the end of verse, uh, verse 5. And so we know, of course, that we've been given a commission. Matthew 28 tells us that we're to go into all the world and make disciples. And time and time again, we're t- told to be witnesses. We looked on Sunday morning the fact that we are ambassadors for Christ. We beseech you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. And so we recognize that, yes, the Lord has entrusted a ministry to us, but it's not based on our skill and ability. And a lot of Christians, I would say from experience, are hesitant to engage in anything because they think they don't have the skill or the ability. Well, it's not really dependent on us. Uh, For instance, I tell people, if if Jehovah Witnesses come to your door, you can always give your testimony and say, here's what the Lord did for me. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist just to say, here's what the Lord did for me. Maybe you can't quote 10 verses or find the references, but you can, can at least uh, give your, your testimony. There's opportunities. It's not based on our, our ability. And so uh, our sufficiency is from the Lord. And so Paul uh, recognizes that, that his, his commission is from the Lord. And then he talks about the content of that that ministry that he's given. And we read that in chapter uh, 4, verse verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ the Lord. That's the point of our ministry, isn't it? We want to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what happens in a lot of places in the world is is people are exalted. Uh, One of the things, uh, we have a friend who is engaged in a work in Malawi, and it's, it's an amazing work, much like the Richards are doing in Liberia. Uh, they actually are mostly back in Canada, but they've got the work going and supported it, and these uh, people have been trained to do Bible studies and outreach. But the, the biggest hindrance is what they've been mistaught, and by people who have, who have uh, wanted a prominent place. I think one of the richest pastors in the world lives in Nigeria, you know, the poor country, well, how did he get so rich? Well, it's this type of, of thing, promoting self, promoting false doctrine, promoting all sorts of things. 
but we want to promote the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. And that's our goal, isn't it? To, to exalt uh, the person of the Lord Jesus. Uh, just look back in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 1, 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. And so it wasn't a popular message. He said the Jews couldn't handle it and the Greeks thought that was silly or crazy. How could somebody dying on a cross do anything uh, for us? But Paul says that's what we preach. Look at chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, verse 2. Where he says, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, back to 2 Corinthians. In, in Galatians uh, chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says uh, the only thing he would want to boast in is the cross, that he is crucified with Christ. And so that's our goal, isn't it, is to proclaim Christ. When people are saved, uh, I'm sure you know, some of us have had discussions with people and you, you recognize that arguments are futile. Um, you, can, you, know, you can win an argument and not move a person. But it's the, it's the glory and beauty of Christ. As people see uh, the beauty of Christ, the glories of Christ, that's what attracts them to the gospel. Um, you know, they may have needs and think that we can meet those needs, but it's really they need to see Christ and, and him lifted up. Christ and him crucified as the, uh, the answer to their, their needs. And so, so Paul uh, recognizes that, that that's, that's what it's about. He talks about the fact that we're not uh, trying to appeal to people just for the sake of appealing to people, but we want to, we want to exalt the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what our individual and corporate lives should be about, that we lift up the person of Christ. Uh, there's lots of testimonies, you can probably find some of them online, of people who have been saved just by reading the scriptures, uh, reading Mark, reading John, and looking at the Lord Jesus, and that's what attracted them uh, to Christianity. It's not, uh, probably if you looked at enough Christians, you'd be repelled. But you look at Christ, and you find attractiveness in him. And so that's what he says about what he's doing. But then he introduces these covenants, the old covenant, uh, that is described in a, a number of ways here. And I'll just list sort of, I just jotted down some of the ways that he describes it. He says it's written on stone. Uh, he says it's a ministry of death. It has a passing glory. He says it's passing away. And it's a ministry of condemnation. So he's talking about the law. He's talking about the Old Testament covenant. Uh, we use the words Old Testament, New Testament, that's Testament is a covenant. So the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So that's what he has to say about the, the Old Covenant. And of course, it was written on stone, uh, you know, those tablets. Uh, you recognize that Moses was a man before his time, right? He was the first person to ever uh, put information on a tablet from the cloud. Uh, now everybody does it, of course, but uh, he was first... Uh, to do that. But there it was uh, written on, on stone. It, uh, it was inflexible, unmovable. Uh, he says it's a ministry of death. Well, what does that mean? That the law condemned. Uh, 
nobody could be saved by keeping the law. And we'll look at that further in a a moment. Uh, He said it was passing away. The Jews didn't recognize this, of course. To them, the Old Testament is what their life is all about, even today. Orthodox Jews rest on the Old Testament. Uh, They have no regard or care for the New Testament at all. It's all about uh, the Old uh, Testament. But they didn't recognize that God was going to do something new, and the new covenant was going to come. And as a ministry of condemnation. And so keep your finger here, but look at Romans chapter 1. Uh, familiar verses, I'm sure. Romans 1. Or Romans, uh, I think maybe it's Romans 3 I want. Romans 3. Must have been that Canadian pen wrote the wrong number down. Romans uh, 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world might become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so the law condemned. The law set a standard and nobody could keep it. Now the rich young ruler came to the Lord Jesus and said, well, yeah, I've done all that. The Lord Jesus, of course, challenged him, well, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind? Your neighbor is yourself. Well, go sell everything. Well, he recognized he couldn't do that. Did he keep the full law? No. Uh, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5 talked about what's in our heart, what we think. Then that's sin, what we are. And so the law sets a standard, and we can't live up to it, and the law comes with a penalty. It's condemnation. Now, Paul says in Galatians, if there was a law that could save that law would do it. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's the fact that none of us, no one ever could live up to the standard that God has set. And then he talks about the fact that it came with glory. And that's true when you think of what happened in in the book of Exodus 19 and 20, and Moses describes that scene later in Deuteronomy, and the the splendor of of God's glory uh, there on the mountain. Moses went up and saw the, the glory of God. And later he asked uh, for a revelation of God, show me your glory. And God revealed his character to him. And so the law came with with splendor, glory. The mountain shook, there was thunder, there was lightning. There was all those things that depicted the very presence of of God. So the law uh, came with that. But he, he says that was a passing glory. It wasn't there forever. And he draws a an illusion, we might say, from the veil that Moses wore. Now, one of the things uh, in studying the Old Testament to recognize is that there are things that the New Testament says, uh, this, is, this is significant. For instance, Sarah and Hagar, as uh, Paul in Galatians talks about. You would never get that by reading the Old Testament yourself, but Paul says, no, this is important. Melchizedek. You wouldn't get it by reading the Old Testament, but the writer Hebrew says, no, this is, this is significant. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we can draw inferences, we can use illustrations, but I think we have to be careful that it's when the New Testament says, this is what took place or this is what this means, then we can take it as a type and a, a picture. Uh, I think that's a distinction we need to, uh, to keep in mind. But he uses this illusion of the veil of of Moses. And of course, Moses came down from the presence of God and his face shone so much that the people of Israel couldn't look at him. 
And so he put a veil on while he was talking. And what the writer, what Paul is saying here, that veil hid the fading glory. It wasn't that his face radiated all the time, but that glory faded over time. And so the Jews didn't see the fading glory that Moses displayed. It was hidden from them. And so he draws that comparison here. They didn't recognize that the glory associated with the law in the Old Testament was passing, and it was a fading glory to replace, be replaced by something else. I think, humanly speaking, you would think perhaps, well, he had to have that veil on because we couldn't stand to look at his face, uh, not in a physical way, but because of the brightness. And uh, you'd think, well, it was like that the rest of his life. But what Paul's saying here, no, it was a de deteriorating, a declining, a passing glory that was going away. And it pictured the, the law came with all that glory, but it wasn't permanent. It was going to come to an end. Now, he contrasts that with the covenant that we are under, the New Testament, the new covenant. He calls it in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 6, he says, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And just like he said about the Old Testament, he lists a number of things that were true of it. He says some things about this new covenant. So he says there, it's of the spirit. Uh, it gives life. He says in verse 11, it remains. It's not passing. It's, it's permanent. Uh, he says it has more glory, a greater glory. And then he says it's revealed too in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's making this, this contrast. And so when you think of the glory of the Old Testament, the giving of the law, that was spectacular. But he says that this comes with more glory. And it's the glory associated with the salvation that God offers. You know, in Ephesians 1 verse 6, it talks about God's grace to us, and it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's a greater glory. The glory associated with the salvation that he offers us in Christ. In Ephesians 2, 7, uh, it tells us that we'll be on display through all eternity as the objects of his grace and of his kindness. Uh, the angelic beings can look at us through all eternity as they look at what God has done. Those People in Ocala who, or Claremont, people in Ocala too, but Claremont, remember what they were like and look at them now, transformed and changed. And so it'll be to the glory of the praise of his grace, or the praise of the glory of his grace through all of eternity. And so he says that's what the new covenant uh, brings. And so what the law could not do, and that the law condemned, this new covenant does, it saves. And we have new life. Uh, through this covenant. And he gives us a life that is eternal. And so the Spirit, uh, the Spirit gives, gives life. And so there's a tremendous contrast. So you can see that uh, from where he's come from, talking about his visit and talking about uh, you know, his situation and his conscience, now he's really delved into something that's far deeper and broader than that as he talks about these, these two contrasting covenants. But in here, he, too, he talks about the conflict that is a result of this. And so he talks about Jews, and then he talks about Satan, and he talks about unbelievers. And again, he uses this, this imagery of the veil, 
of the fact that something is hidden, something's not uh, revealed. So for Jews, he talks about the fact that when they read the Old Testament, it's like that veil is over their face. They don't see the truth in the Old Testament. They don't, they don't see it there. Now, when you look at Judaism in this world, there are perhaps 17 million Jews, they say, maybe 18 million Jews in the world. The majority of them live in the United States. There are about six and a half or seven million uh, Jews in, in Israel. Uh, but out of all these Jews, uh, there are the ones we see that are Orthodox or practicing Jews, some to various extents. You, you see the ones with the uh, unique hats and the curls and all these, and then you see the others with the, just the uh, piece on their head. Uh, but the majority of Jews worldwide are secular. They're not, they're not religious Jews. They're culturally Jews. So they will keep holidays like we would keep holidays. You know, people celebrate Easter. Why? Well, not because Christ rose from the dead, but because it's a holiday. They celebrate Christmas, not because of the birth of Christ, but because you get a present. And so a lot of Jews are like that. They will celebrate those days. But there is a segment, a large percentage, who are um, Orthodox, who are religious Jews. Uh, one of our trips to Israel uh, there are a number of Jews, obviously, on the plane as we're traveling from Toronto to, to Tel Aviv. And uh, one of them was trying to get a quorum. You have to have 10 in a quorum uh, to have a meeting. A synagogue folds if there are less than 10 men in an area. In our town, there used to be a synagogue, but once there's less than 10, you can't have a synagogue. So this man was going around the plane trying to get 10 Jews to go back to have a time of prayer at the back of the plane. And he asked one of the fellows in our group if he was Jewish and so on. I said, no, but then the guy next to him uh, was Jewish and he said, go back. When, when that fellow came back and sat beside the fellow in our group, he said, I don't believe any of that, but I thought I'd go and just make them happy. <laughs> so <laughs> so he, he made their quorum for them. He was their, their tenth, but no thought of it, no, no idea of it. Uh, and Jews, of course, they look at the Old Testament they memorized the Old Testament. Through the Middle Ages, Jewish young men would memorize a million words. They, they would have, in, in Jewish dialogue and, and uh, debate, you can't say, well, somewhere it's written. You've got to be able to say, you know, Jeremiah said this, or Isaiah said this, and this, this pattern. When you're in the city of Jerusalem, you see uh, storefronts that are rabbinical schools, and you see these guys just sitting, pouring over scriptures. When you're at the Western Wall and you go down Hezekiah's tunnel, uh, you see, again, students in there just studying and debating and that type of, of thing. But in all their uh, you know, emphasis on the Old Testament, they seem to ignore Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And I've heard that often in their, probably always in their uh, Sabbath readings, they skip those passages because they don't have an answer for it. I asked a, a fellow in Israel once about, uh, for instance, I said about Proverbs 30, verse 4, you know, uh, who is the creator and what is his son's name, if you can tell? I said, well, what do they do with that verse? He said, they ignore it. They, they don't do anything with it. They just skip it over because they'd have to then deal with it. Psalm 2, you know, you're my son. This day have I begotten you. And so verses like that, they just, they just ignore. And so... Uh, the veil is, is there on their face. They have the scriptures, 
but they, they won't look honestly at them and say, well, who is this one that is, you know, despised, rejected? Who is this one who is pierced? Zechariah 11, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Well, who is this one? But they won't look at those scriptures. But when a person does come to Christ, a Jewish person, it's like this, the veil is removed, right? So, so now they suddenly see. I think you've had Steve Herzog here, right? And Steve, you know, a converted Jew. His father was a, a rabbi, and uh, he came out of that, that system. But that veil was gone. Uh, the guides I've used in Israel are Messianic Jews, so they're, they're believers. And the one guy, this man Salo, had a tremendous testimony, um, quite a humorous guy as well, but uh, he worked in a place where beside him there was a, a Christian. And this guy was always witnessing to him and actually started coming to his house and having you know, tea with him and talking about the Bible and so on. And finally, this Salo just got sick of it. He said to his wife, I can't take this anymore. I can't take it. I'm going away for the weekend. I'm going somewhere on a bus and I have a holiday. So he said he went away for the weekend. And when he got back to the bus to come home, he said there on the same bus was the guy that he worked beside. <laughs> and also without him knowing, without either knowing, had gone on the same uh, weekend. And so he got saved through that. So the veil came off. Tremendous testimony of the veil uh, being removed. And so that's true. If you've read Zvi, you know, the Friends of Israel in the back, uh, Zvi's dead now, but uh, tremendous testimony of a man who came out of the Holocaust, out of the Warsaw Ghetto, and uh, got saved. His son, Menno Kalashar, is a pastor now in uh, Jerusalem, and they have a tremendous uh, ministry uh, there. And so the veil can come off, and it does at times. And so that's what Paul says. When a Jew comes to Christ, it's like the veil has been taken off. But what about, he says something about unbelievers here in chapter 4. And what he says is, uh, verse 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not, do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. I think we recognize that we are involved in a battle, and there is an enemy, the enemy of, of our souls, and the enemy the souls of men. And Satan doesn't want to, to see people saved, and he does all sorts of things. You know, in, in Matthew chapter 13, the Lord Jesus tells seven parables. He goes out of the house to the seaside and tells four. Then he comes back into the house with his disciples and tells three more. The four by the seaside all contain something negative in them. And so in the first one, as the seed is sown, some of that seed falls in the wayside and the birds come and pick it. And the Lord Jesus explains that parable and he says the birds, that's Satan stealing the seed. So preaching takes place, but Satan snatches it away. The second one, the servants plant wheat, but while they sleep, the enemy comes and plants tares. And the Lord Jesus says, well, you can't tell them apart. You've got to wait till the end of the age. It's not your job, but at the end of the age, it'll be revealed. And the third one, the mustard seed, the birds of the air. Now, if we're going to be consistent, the birds in the first parable were Satan. The birds of the air find their place in that tree. They nest in that tree. And then the fourth one, a woman puts leaven into three measures of meal. Three measures of meal in the Old Testament was a meal offering. Now she's putting leaven in there. And leaven in scripture is 
is falsehood, is, is false teaching. And so that goes in there. And I would suggest that all represents the opposition to the gospel. Uh, Satan opposes it. He's in opposition in the first parable. Uh, he's, he's mimicking or copying in the second parable. Uh, he's infiltrating in the third one, and he's corrupting in the fourth one. And so he, of course, doesn't want to see people saved. There's a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of light. Why don't people respond to the gospel? Their minds are blinded. It's a, sort of an interesting fact, this uh, intriguing sort of situation. This happened in Quebec, it's happened in France, it happened in the south of Ireland. Is people were very religious, steeped in Catholicism. And as the, the hold of the Catholic Church lessened and as there were all these, these uh, sort of things that, you know, that's, that uh, soiled their reputation, people left in droves. And I think initially we often thought, well, now we have something to offer. But it hasn't happened. France is a hard field. South of Ireland is a very difficult field. Quebec is a very difficult field. Why? Their minds are blinded. But almost anybody you talk to, it's hard to, it's hard to connect, isn't it? But we've got to recognize their minds are blinded. How are they ever going to know the truth? The Spirit of God convicts of sin, of righteousness, of judgment to come. There's got to be that inner work of the Spirit. Perhaps a good illustration is Zechariah 3, where Joshua, the high priest, is standing there in his filthy garments, and it says Satan was standing there to resist what God was going to do. Well, what right would he have? Well, he's there uh, to resist the work that God is going to do. Uh, later in 2 Corinthians, uh, we're told that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. And so uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we're in a battle and the enemy doesn't want to, to lose uh, anyone, any of his subjects to the gospel. And then he talks about unbelievers who do come to faith. And we mentioned this as the fact that it's God who shines out of the, the one who brought light of the darkness, who shines in their hearts. So they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing. I'm sure we can all look back to the day of our salvation and say, oh, that was true. That's what attracted us. That's what we saw, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what people need uh, in order to be saved. They need to see a Savior who is sinless, and spotless, undefiled, one who died on the cross for their sins, who rose again, and who loves them and invites them uh, to be to, to a salvation that's full and free. And so that's a wonderful, wonderful thing uh, when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so their eyes are opened and they get saved because they see Christ. But then he also talks about the effect for us when the veil is taken away. Verses 17 and 18 and you could spend a long time on these verses, but he talks about the fact that there is now liberty. So in the Old Testament, you had law, legalism, but now you have, you have liberty. And so that's a wonderful thing. Galatians uh, 5 verse 1, if you read it in Darby's translation, it's for the sake of liberty, Christ has set us free. And that's a wonderful thing. For the sake of liberty, Christ has set us free. Freedom in Christ. The law was an external 
uh, force that said, this is how you should live. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But liberty allows us to be led by the Spirit of God from within. I have liberty to say no to certain things. I don't, I'm not forced to, to sin. I'm not forced to do those things. I have liberty to say no to those things. I have liberty to serve the Lord. I have liberty to follow uh, the Spirit. I'm not bound by the, the law. The law gives me God's standard, but that's not what binds me. It's being led by the Spirit, uh, having the Spirit of God uh, within me. And so he says, that's true for us. But in verse 18, now that we're saved with unveiled face, we can see something. And this is a wonderful thought. I just want to sort of emphasize this and leave it to you in a devotional way. Twice in the New Testament, the image of a mirror is used. And so James talks about a mirror that a a man walks up to, he sees what is there, he walks away and he forgets. And all of us guys can relate to that. Because he doesn't say a woman walks up to the mirror and walks away and forgets. The guy walks up and says, well, what can you do with what you've got? And you walk away and you're, you're quite content. And so that mirror reveals what we are. In fact, you could say it's a three-dimensional mirror. As we look in the mirror of God's word, it tells us what we used to be. It tells us what we should be, but it tells us what we are. And James's point, we should do something with what we see there. We not only hear, but we put into practice the word of God. So that's a mirror that reveals what we are. It reads us, right? Uh, Hebrews 4.13, all things are open and naked before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So nothing is hidden from God. The the verse before, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And what does it do? It reveals the thoughts and intents of our heart. It exposes what's in us. And so uh, as we look in the mirror of God's word, that should be true. Here, uh, the, the idea is that that we look in this mirror and we see not us, but we see Christ. As we look in the word of God, we see the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see him and are captivated by him, what we see, then the spirit of God will take those things as we live in obedience and will apply them to our hearts so that we become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a mirror, not that... uh, reveals so much but but transforms it has a transforming effect now in the old testament the laver was made out of the looking glasses with bronze uh, looking glasses of the of the women and when the priest came there it would reveal what was defiled uh, the hands that were blood-stained and what needed to be cleansed he would reveal that the water had that cleansing effect, and they were constantly to go to that labor uh, to, to, be, to be cleansed. And so when you think of the word of God, it has that effect, or is to have that effect in our life. The washing of water by the word, uh, the Lord Jesus says, is what he's doing collectively to us. That he might present us to himself a glorious bride without spot, without wrinkle. And uh, John 13, uh, the washing of the feet is, is that in, in picture and in type, that uh, the cleansing, and we get that as we spend time in the Word of God. But you want to look in the Word and see the Lord Jesus Christ, and the more you focus on Him. Remember the story from Greek mythology, I think it is, Narcissus, right? What did he do? He saw the image of himself in the pool of water, and he fell in love with that image. 
He wanted that more than anything. Uh, narcissism, that's where we get the word, to be in love with yourself. And so we want to look in the word of God and see the Lord Jesus Christ and be changed from one degree of glory to another as the Spirit of God works in us, molds us and makes us. That's God's purpose for us. And so we look with unveiled face. We can see Christ in all his glory and beauty. John could say, uh, we beheld him, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We could see that. Glory or grace and even more grace. And so we could look at him and see that. Ultimately, we will be like him. Billy referenced that, the, the body we leave behind, but the body we get, we will be like him someday. But it's God's purpose that progressively, maturity, completeness, perfection, those words in the New Testament, uh, conformity, we look more, behave more, develop more of the character of the Lord Jesus, it has nothing to do with how much we know nothing to do with intellect or social standing or background. It's everything to do with the captivation of the person of Christ. Are we in love with him to such a degree that we want to see him day by day in his word and want to become uh, like him? Is that, is that where it's going? You know, we sometimes sing uh, Darby's hymn, and is it so, I shall be like thy son. Is this the grace which he for me has won? Father of glory, thought beyond all thoughts, in glory to his own blessed likeness brought. That's ultimately where we're going. We might as well start here, right? Focus on him, fall in love with him, look in the word and, and see him. And so we have that privilege. The unbelieving Jew, the veil is still there. The unbeliever, Satan has blinded their eyes. But for us, the veil is lifted. And we can see Christ in all his beauty. And so it's our desire to become more like him day by day. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the covenant that we are under, a covenant that is of the Spirit, that brings life, a covenant that has even greater uh, glory, a covenant that uh, we enjoy with an unveiled face and that we can look in your word and see the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we view him, uh, the Son of God in the Word of God, the Spirit of God would take those things and make us more like Him, little by little, from one degree of glory to another. And so, Father, we thank you for this. We pray that this may grab hold of us. We don't want to be like the person that James describes who looks in this mirror and forgets. But, Father, help us to put this into practice in our lives. We just thank you for the beauty and depth of your Word as well. We thank you for that day that that light shone in our hearts, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for him and all that we have in him. Watch over us, we pray, as we separate, guide and direct us uh, in, in accordance with your will. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.